Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the rich blessings you give us by gathering us here this morning to hear your word and to speak and to encourage each other in your word. We pray, Father, this morning as, as we hear your word that by your spirit you will teach us, conform us and encourage us in Christ that we might live to the praise and glory of Jesus, that we might desire his will and apply his will to our lives. And we ask this in his great name. Amen. How are your eyes? Some of you are going, oh, not that good. Some of you are thinking, is that really a bloke up there? Um, uh, though I'm still quite young, I've started to notice that my eyes are no longer working like they used to. You know, I don't need glasses. Um, I can still see you all, so you'd be happy to know. Uh, and I'm not expecting that that day will come anytime soon. But I know the day is coming. I know the day is coming where I will have to go to the optometrist and admit to that man, I cannot see like I used to, please give me some reading glasses. And I know this because when I sit in bed and read sometimes, I find myself doing these ones, which we all know is the sure sign. Now, sight is a wonderful sense. We love being able to see. It is a wonderful sense because through our sight, we perceive just a veritable just the abundant gifts and the abundant beauty of God's creation. Yet I suspect for many, especially for the young, uh, it is a sense we can easily take for granted. And that is, we take it for granted until the point where we lose it. But what I've also started to notice about people is when they start to struggle with their sight or they start to, things start to get a bit blurry they can sometimes be a little bit slow to admit it. Some people get, they'll want to put it off and go, well, my eyes are not that bad, I can still get by. To the point of, I knew this young lady and she was very, still quite young and her eyes were not the best. To the point where she was doing the squinty, I can't see that road sign thing in the car which sort of disquieted her husband somewhat when he was driving with her. And he, so he, being newly married, didn't want to say, go and get glasses, you're blind, uh, quietly and gently tried to suggest, hey, maybe you need to go get and see an optometrist, to which he got the quiet and lovely reply of no. And he kept on persisting and she kept on refusing and finally she admitted it. But even when she finally went to the optometrist and had her eyes checked, she said, he's just trying to con me. He just wants me to spend a lot of money on frames. It didn't matter the signs that she was seeing. She was refusing to admit that her eyesight was not that good, that her eyesight was getting worse. And finally... She had to admit it, and she did finally get the frames. In the passage before us this morning, Jesus is asking us, Jesus is giving us a spiritual eye test. And he's asking us, do you see me? Do you see me? See, what we've got before us is really the response to signs, to miracles that Jesus has done. And Jesus is asking his, the people before him, do you see what's going on? Do you have the spiritual eyesight you need to actually perceive what's going on in the world? 
And what we're finding here, and as you look at the Israelites, the answer is no. And the, the question we've got to ask, why don't they see? Why can't they see what seems so obvious? Why can't they see who Jesus is and respond to him rightly? As we look at this passage this morning, what we're going to be looking at and thinking about is what stops people from perceiving God rightly, from perceiving Jesus rightly and perceiving who he is? Now, we need to be clear in terms of the context. So like This sermon comes in the middle of John chapter 6. And so you need to know what's happened just before. And there's two significant events that have just happened before in this section that you need to understand as you're reading the passage. And that is that Jesus has just done two miraculous signs. He's just fed the people in the wilderness. He's just given them bread. And he's just crossed over the lake or the uh, body of water and it's the sea of Galilee I'm pretty sure but I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, thing on that but both are allusions to the Old Testament obviously we read the first allusion to the bread in the wilderness which comes directly from Exodus 16 the second one is an allusion to Psalm 107 where God walks over the water and both of the miracles point to Jesus divinity and he expects most of the people at this point to actually understand the meaning of those miracles. He expects them to see who he is. And so as we turn to verse 25, we find the people looking for Jesus, but they're looking for him for all the wrong reasons. And so Jesus rebukes them. He says, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him, the God, uh, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. These verses show here that Jesus is weighing their perception. He is weighing their spiritual sight and he's finding it wanting. You see it in, the verse, in verse 25 when he says, you are looking for me. So they're looking for Jesus, but they're looking for him. Why? Because they're searching for something to have their desires filled. This passage is ultimately about what you search for is what you desire, or your search is about the thing you desire. You will go looking for in life the thing that you desire that is what this passage is ultimately teaching and what jesus is saying is the reason you can't see me the reason you can't perceive who i am is because you are searching for the wrong thing you are desiring the wrong desires and we see that at the end of verse 25 he says to them you are searching for him not because you saw the signs, not because you saw the miracles, but because you ate the loaves, you ate the bread. Your desire is to fill your tummy. That is why you don't see, because your desire is to fill your tummy. See, what the Israelites are thinking is, well, 
here is we're in a great relationship with God. We're in this good. We're, we've got the laws of Moses. We're doing the things of Moses. We are God's people. We have a great relationship with God. Therefore, we don't need to worry about the God thing. The God thing's taken care of. We just need to look for the, wor- uh, the worldly thing. We just need to make sure our tummies are filled. And so they see Jesus and Jesus does this wonderful miracle. He feeds them in the wilderness. And they go, to put it in a modern context, wow, this guy's better than a drive through Let's go back to him and get our feet up. Let's get more food. And Jesus' response to that is, you have got to be kidding. You are here for food? You want food? Do you know who I am? You think you lack earthly bread. You think you lack earthly food. Let me tell you, you lack the true food that counts. You lack the true desires that count. Your desire is in your tummy. Your desire will be satisfied by your fridge. Great. Where is God? Where am I? To work for your fridge is foolish. But that's what you find our world is doing. It is working to fill a refrigerator. Jesus says, do not work for food that perishes, but work for the food that is eternal life. And the Israelites are like, okay, that sounds great. Give us this bread. What work must we do to get this? This is the work of God. To believe in the one he has sent. See, to truly desire the things of God, to truly want the things of God, is actually to trust in the one he has sent. It's to trust in Jesus. It is to desire Jesus. That is what Jesus is saying here. You cannot see because you are looking for food of this earth. When great food, food to eternal life is standing right before you. Work for that food. Now, as Christians, we can fall into the same sort of mentality. And I see this happening on campus all the time. We can fall into the mentality of, well, I'm a Christian I'm a good person, I go to church, I do my Bible study, I run youth group, I do kids talk. Gee whiz, I've got all the Christian things ticked. You know, I'm doing all the Christian stuff. I don't really, you know, that's enough. Done. Finished. And what Jesus is saying is, no, it is never finished. So you don't pick up Jesus when you drive into your car and park it at the car park and then leave Jesus at the door and then drive out and get on with the rest of your life. That's not the way it works. Jesus isn't, well, I'll use him in this section, in this compartment of my life, but over here I'll live my life the way I want and do the things I want and chase the desires I want. See, the reality is, As Christians, we are to desire Jesus 
all the time, every moment, in every aspect, at every point in our lives. We are to seek the things of the above. We are to seek God who is above. We are to seek Jesus. And you might be thinking, well, of course I know that. Of course I will do this. But every time, every time we compartmentalise Jesus, every time we put our desires before Jesus, what we're really saying to him is, you are second. Actually, you're not the most important thing in my life. My desires, my wants are. Uh, when I was, before I entered into the ministry and before I uh, decided to go on to serve Christ in proclaiming his word formally on campus, uh, one of the ways I used to do this was that I wanted people to actually think, oh, being a Christian doesn't change you. Being a Christian doesn't mean it's any difference. And so where it always used to come out, and especially in my workplace, was on Melbourne Cup Day. Because on Melbourne Cup Day, what would happen was there would be an office sweep. And the question was, you go around, do you want to be part of the office sweep? And my response was, I don't want to stand out, I don't want to be different. I will join the office suite because I want people to know that being Christian doesn't change you. That being Christian doesn't mean you have to be a wowser. It doesn't mean you can't be one of the gang, that you can't fit in. That being Christian doesn't really change you. Can I say now as I look back at my life and look back at why I said that, that I was a complete coward. I was a complete coward at those times. I didn't join the office suite because I really cared about Jesus. Oh, sure, it sounded good. I was caring about their desires and wanting them to come to know that Jesus and Christianity doesn't change that much. But the reality was I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be with them. And I didn't have the guts and the convictions to stand up and say, no, gambling is wrong and it is unloving to take money from... Uh, your neighbour, because that's what gambling is. Taking the chance to take money off your neighbour so that you can feel your greed. I didn't want to say that because I was a coward. That's how you relegate Jesus to second. You can do it, you can sound good and you can sound pious even as you're doing it. But the reality is, if you, watch, you, if you will not question your desire, if you will not question the thing you want, let me tell you, you will put Jesus second. Every time. Every time. Being Christian will make you stand out. Being Christian will make you stand out. It does change your life. Christianity has a cost. It comes with a cost. Why? Because you have to be different. You have to stand out. Now, you might be thinking, wow, it means I need to do more. No, for a lot of Christians, it actually it means you need to do less. It means to actually thinking through some of the things you need to say no to. 
I'm not, no, I'm not going to go out and get drunk with my mates on Friday after the pub. No, I'm not going to gamble. No, I am going to go to church on a Sunday instead of doing sport with the kids. No, I am going to make a sacrifice so that people will see that being Christian changes your life. And it should change your life. It is different. We are different people. We're not better. We know, though, and we want and desire Jesus. And because we desire Jesus, it will stand out. We will be different. Hear Jesus again. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. I am not saying drop everything. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is in all that you do, think about and make sure you do not relegate Jesus to second. If you put your trust in him, if you put your faith in Jesus, it will cost. It will come at a cost. Jesus is asking an awful lot at this point. He is calling us to trust him in everything. He is asking us to make him our every desire. He is asking us to give uh, for the potential to give up everything for the sake of him. Instead of seeking to fulfill our own desires, he is asking us to put his desires, his wishes above our own. And so the right question to ask is, well, if you want me to trust you with everything, how can I trust you? How can I be sure? And the Israelites respond with the simple words, prove it. Prove it. And so Jesus gives the sign, reading from verse 30. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them the bread from heaven. See, the Israelites are saying here, quite simply, show us the evidence, show us the proof, show us that you are the one we are to trust. Now we hear the same questions from atheists all the time today. Show me the proof for God. Show me the evidence. Show me the proof that your God is true. But here we see why actually asking for evidence, asking for proof is ridiculous. And the answer is simple. God will never do on-demand miracles. And in the passage, if we keep it in context, we'll see why. Because here we see that Jesus has just done miracles. He has just done the signs. He has just shown them who he is. God fed the Israelites in the wilderness. They have said it. Our fathers, Moses fed us in the wilderness and that was from God. What sign are you going to do? Neglecting the fact that he just did it yesterday. The reality is Jesus has just done the miracle. He has just given them the sign and they've chosen to ignore it. Why is giving more proof, giving more evidence, going to be a sign that, they, okay, this time you're going to believe? If they've ignored it all the times before, they're not going to suddenly change this time. Because the reality is those who are looking for miracles are actually looking for excuses not to believe. That's what they're really looking for. 
The Israelites at this point have the Netflix viewer divinity. That is, God is on demand for me, and if he just calls out some signs to me, he will then do what I want. That is not the way God acts. God doesn't do on-demand signs. He never will. Jesus says, Jesus says, and they say to Jesus, just give us what we want. Just give us another sign and then we will believe. How many more signs do you want? Especially when the greatest sign is standing there before them. How do I know that? Because Jesus is God and he's standing before them. It would be like you saying, Adam, prove to me that you exist. And I'm like, I'm here. I don't believe you. Okay, what do you want me to do about it then? There is nothing I can do. If you're not going to believe me when I'm standing before you that I exist, okay, see you later, game over. Here is God in the flesh standing before these people. And they're saying, give us signs that you're God. Okay, I'm here. What more do you want? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many signs I give you. It doesn't matter for the person who is looking for signs. It does not matter how many signs, how many proofs you give them. They will always find an excuse. The reason they always find an excuse is they don't want to believe. Well, okay, that's fine. That's your choice and you're welcome to it. Stop asking for evidence. Stop asking for proof. Jesus says in verse 32, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In searching for the miracle, they were ignoring the miracle standing right before them. God had come down and dwelt amongst them. He was standing there and they chose to ignore it. Okay, that's your choice. Asking for more proofs from God that you are God when you're standing there There's nothing more you can do. The reality is people are not looking for God who are looking for miracles. Any Christian, any Christian who's been a Christian for a certain period of time and who has prayed to God has seen many miracles from God. A miracle is just God answering a sign and giving a sign. And every time... You say to an atheist, I prayed and God did this. This is what the atheists say. That's just a coincidence. That was just a fluke. Okay, I've had many coincidences in life. What am I supposed to do? The real proof, and that actually, funnily enough, is not the real proof and the real evidence of God. The real proof and the real evidence of who God is, is who Jesus is, is his character. That is actually who is the real proof of who Jesus is. It is the character of his life. 
when I look at the Gospels and as I watch Jesus, the thing that amazes me about Jesus isn't the signs that he does. It isn't the walking on the water. It isn't the bread. isn't the virgin birth. Yeah, they're, they're interesting, but reality, they're not that, you know, they're God doing great things. God created the universe. Of course he can come as a infant babe. God created the universe that he can make some bread and send some quail. Well, okay, big whoop. Because the big miracle, you know, is that God actually wants a relationship with us. It is God's character, his desire to be amongst his people. It's the way he lives his life. It's the way that Jesus carries himself that is the actual proof of who he is. So the reason why the Israelites couldn't see who Jesus was, the reason why they could not see God when he was standing right before him was they did not know God. And the reason they did not know God is because they weren't reading the Old Testament. And the reason they weren't reading their Old Testaments is they didn't desire to know God. See, the reason why people can't see who Jesus is, the reason why people can't see God in the flesh is because they do not want to know God. They do not want to know his character. And so they've rejected him. That's their choice. They'll have to explain it to God, but I am, if God has done miracle after miracle, proof after proof, sign after sign, and you then shows up and you still say, prove me you exist, nothing I can do. There's no rational argument that's going to win you over. You've made your choice. Your desire is to remove yourself from God's vision. That is your choice and you are welcome to it, and I will not change you. But don't ask me for any more proofs or signs. It's a waste of time. You're wasting your time, you're wasting my time. But for those who do want to know Jesus, those who do want to know who he is, those who do want to see God in the flesh, Jesus says in verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Now this section has so much in it. It is so chock-a-block. But there are two points that I want to draw out before I close up. And the first one is this. Firstly... Jesus will succeed. Jesus will save all that the Father gives him. If you know Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, you can be sure that he will carry you through to the end. He will not fail. That is the great assurance of God to us. Our efforts will not save us. Our, our brilliance, our intellect, 
our strength, nothing of, of us will save us. We are not reliant upon our ability for salvation, but on Jesus. This is the work of God. Believe in the one he has sent. This should make us extremely humble as we acknowledge that it is God who saves and he saves us through grace. It is not our work. The second thing is that given that we are saved through Jesus by the will of our, for, our Father, our trust, uh, our sh- trust in Jesus should give us great assurance. We should have great assurance. We have nothing to fear. We do not have to worry about the world going off and doing its things. We do not have to worry about the attacks of, of atheists or Islam or anything like that. Jesus gives assurance. He will carry his people through to the end. Do not worry. And notice what Jesus says. If you trust in Jesus, then we already have life eternal. See, to have true life is not to be breathing and to be respirating. To have true life is to actually be living out and being transformed to be in the character and image of God. That is what it means to be alive with God. It is to be like God, to be like God in his character, to be like him in his nature, to actually reflect the, the fruit of the Spirit. Joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, brotherly love, self-control. That is what it is to be like God. It is to display the godly character. Christians often struggle with the place of works in salvation. This passage makes it clear. God is the one who saves. And when he saves, you desire new things. You desire to be not like the world. Hence, why they will persecute you. Why it will cost. Because what you say to the world when you stand up and you are like Jesus is, you guys are heading in the wrong direction. That is why persecution comes. People don't want to be reminded that they're out of sync with God. And so they'll persecute and they'll treat people who remind them of that. That is what's going on. Christians, upon uh, once they call and place their trust on Jesus, are pulled out of the world. We are made to be different. Passages like this should make it clear to us. We need to be different. Knowing God is knowing God's character. And once you know God's character, it will impact every aspect of our lives. It will impact our lives every day. It impacts the decisions we make. It impacts our hopes, our dreams, our desires. It impacts the way we spend our time. It impacts the way we spend our money, the things we do, the people we want to see. It will impact everything. It will impact what you consume. It will even impact the way you set up your house because you will do it for the sake of others. You will do it for the sake of displaying a godly character. When you trust in Jesus, when you place your trust in Jesus, you will have a new life. You will have new desires. And God's people's desires are forged in prayer. Hear that again. God's people's desires 
are forged in prayer. To have new desires means you will have to have a new life and shape and do the hard work of shaping those desires. Every time I think of prayer now, I tend to think of prayer as a man working at a, in a blacksmith. It is hot and hard and sweaty work. We don't think of prayer as hard, sweaty work, as man's work, do we? But I can tell you that's what it is because you are wrestling with your desires to conform them to those of our God. God's people's desires are forged in prayer. And, you know, every day, every day, I pray for my children. Every day. And I pray a simple prayer. I don't pray that they will be massively intelligent. I don't pray that they will do brilliant at school. I know that might be wrong. I don't pray that they'll have a great job. I don't pray that they'll be, have the best relationships, wonderful kids, big, great sporting superstars like their father. Uh, I don't pray for any of that. This is what I pray for, that they will grow up to know and to love and to serve the Lord Jesus. That's what I pray for. Because I know if they get that, I know if... God works that in their lives, the rest of it will take care of itself. Because the rest of it is, is secondary. Because if they're displaying the godly character, life will work out. It just will. But to wrestle your, your desires, to conform them to the image of God, that is what is hard. I pray for them in my quiet times. I pray for my wife in my quiet times. I pray for my friends. I pray for my extended family. And generally the prayer is almost, almost the same. I pray that they will conform to the image and character of God. Because I know if people do that, the rest will sort itself out. And it will. In conclusion, the essence of this passage is simple. What you search for is what you will desire. Or more importantly, what you desire is what you search for. What you desire is what you search for. As we come to the end of 2017, and I almost wanted to say 2016, it has gone that quickly. As we come to the end of 2017, I ask you this question. What do you desire for 2018? What is your dream? What is your hope? What is the New Year's resolution that you have come up with? Because that will tell you what you really desire. Let me encourage you. Make your desire to be like Christ. Make your desire to know God and to know his character. Make your desire to be uh, have your desires shaped in prayer. Make your desire to know God and that all your family might know his great and awesome character. And make your desire that your friends, your work colleagues will do the same. Make your desire Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for Jesus. We do thank you that he is 
more than capable to fulfill all our desires. Help us to know that whoever comes to him will never go hungry. Whoever comes to him will never be thirsty. Help us to understand the importance and significance of these words and to fulfill our every desire in Jesus. And we ask this in his great and awesome name. Amen.